Hi, I'm Keegan, and this is GM Talks, and uh, it's a new thing I'm trying, and I'm going to be jo- be joined with my buddy Brennan. We're just going to shoot the shit about games. Hi, I'm Keegan's buddy Brennan. I play D&D from time to time. Uh, Brennan has played with me in uh, other games. He, he was actually in the first two werewolf games I ran, and uh, you may recognize his voice from, as Malcolm in a couple of our episodes for... Anyone who listens to our games, and for all probably negative three of you who've never listened to the werewolf game who are listening to this. <laughs> so, They're fun games, you should listen to them. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, Brennan, we'll get started. I think everyone listening to this knows what I'm running. Uh, they may not know that with Pugmire ending that we will be doing They Came From Beneath the Sea, but uh, what games have you been running lately? Uh, lately I I typically run fifth edition for ease of use, but I've been running one game with a mythological Viking theme, um, more low fantasy, and uh, one other game of my own setting creation, uh, that is currently on hold because of the quarantines. Mm. <sighs> so. Guess what kind of uh, kind of games are you looking forward to? Uh, do you have any kind of like dream games that you'd Ooh. like to run? One of my games I have in mind is uh, for a short term, just running a John Wick style, perhaps World of, World of Darkness Mortals, nice. where the characters gradually become monster hunters, like the Men in Black. I like that. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, one other one that I tried to run before was after you told me about Dungeon Crawl Classics. I tried to get a group of players to have three villagers. And the plot was that they would discover a dungeon beneath their mining town. And they would go through a funnel and gradually come out the end with a level one character that we would then continue on to about a level 15 game. Where they build armies and go to war. Okay, uh, and you're yeah. you're modifying fifth edition for that, right? Yeah, I yeah. Uh, am more familiar with fifth edition than I am with DCC. So, and most of my players are that way as well. That's fair. So, uh, so what are uh, what are some of your go tos? Like tropes? Do you have any go to tropes? Uh not per se. I'm real fond of. Slaying the dragon, or of the meek becoming strong. Okay. Like rooting for the underdog types. Uh, in one game I've run recently, I that's uh, actually one of the games that's on hold. Uh, or scratch that. A game that uh, is a placeholder. We finished a campaign, closed the book on it, but it was my players who were more or less just romping through the countryside, being murder hobos, but everyone was having a good time. And I gradually walked them into more a more grand storyline where they became the chosen heroes, even though they weren't the chosen oh. heroes. Okay. And they fought a lich with legendary weapons. Nice. And we've reopened that game to play on voice chat. Okay. So I'm fond of uh, the heroes who aren't predestined, who okay. have to live up to those things. I think you would get a kick out of DCC then for sure, because it specifically calls them adventurers, not heroes, because they mm. can die. Oh, yeah. Um, but two, um, have you ever looked at the first edition AD&D DMG? Long ago. I uh, believe I have a copy of it somewhere. Okay, I got a printed copy, and I gotta say it's easily one that anyone doing D&D or general fantasy should pick up. Um... For one thing, it gives people a crash course in dice probability and statistics, which is important for when you're actually trying to think of a challenge, especially one that doesn't, you know, fall within the rules, I think. Hmm. Uh, It shows, like, linear probability and um, bell curve probability. And then it goes into things like ecology. (laughs) Like, hey, D&D's got... All these giant monsters. How do they eat? 
things you should ask yourself so you don't ruin immersion in your games. Here's a is, that, is that something that you find players run into a problem in your games? To, I, to no, I don't think so. I don't think players actively think about it at all. Um, and I don't think, I think Gygax thought a little t- bit too much about it. Um, uh, that's why there is that term Gygaxian um, naturalism. Mm-hmm. But it's like a, um, it's like a good baseline. When it's there and you, um, if you've played with it frequently, you're not going to notice it, but you're going to appreciate it. But um, once it's gone, you might notice it being dis- different and feel wrong, especially if you're doing a kind of low fantasy setting. Certainly. Um, and it's just something I've been putting more thought to for my low fantasy games and any sort of like dungeon crawl classics or um, BX Essentials game I'd want to do. Um, any kind of old school dungeon crawly OSR sort of sort of vibed game. There's a lot of good stuff in there to get that specific feel because um, like Conan with uh, red nails, there's only one dragon in the area. All the other ones died, but it's one dragon for miles and it's the primary predator because it pushed everything out and that's the big thing Conan comes across. Hmm. That's something I, I like a lot is um, when uh, the world feels real enough. And that's something I've been playing with with my personal setting and working on fine-tuning. Like I really like when the city, and that's not a detail you generally get into, but it's nice to have that backdrop and place player, players ask, like, what's trade like here? What mm-hmm. What can we sort of sink our teeth into? And especially when your uh, opponents, like a band of roving orcs, actually have an end goal, and they're not there just to be killed. Yes. That well, that's actually, uh, that's a big reason why I like Eberron, actually. Orcs have a culture, and they come in conflict, but they aren't um, tried and true, kind of like an evil race, which I actually really like and kind of prefer. It adds a level of moral complexity to a typical slashing, you know, sword and sorcery D&D game. Hmm. That's one thing I've been really pleased to see is the wave of posts from Reddit or Tumblr talking about, like, uh, try this. Like, there's one I'm really fond of that uh, suggests that um, different races like different types of food. Like, goblins eat more mushrooms than lots of other people because they grow in caves. So you might have, like, a a goblin mushroom chef who's super good at uh, frying up stuff, but it might... Tastes more rancid to another race. Yeah, I kind of like that. I do like that, actually. Um, I also like uh, just the idea of uh, the disease check um, tables in the DMG for first edition again, where it's every month you roll a D100 with uh, varying percentages. So the base chance of contracting a disease is 2% in any given month because, well, you're in a medieval fantasy world, you know, modern medicine doesn't really exist. Mm. And, uh, if you, and if you're already um, diseased or infested with a parasite, that increases. If you're in a crowded, if you're really crowded, like in a city, that increases again. If there's a lot of filth, once again, like the old part of the city increases. If you're old, environment, so on and so forth, will increase it or decrease those chances. Mm. On on that front, do you like to use more lasting effects in your games? I I was against it initially, but when you start to think of like, hey, this this um, poison, like in Dungeon Crawl Classics, will permanently drop your strength by a D three. That seems really harsh, especially because DCC doesn't give you attribute increases with level ups. But instead of a character feeling worn out or like this sucks what you do is you add in a quest and if if the character wants to regain their strength back then you just make it a quest they quest for the magical item or the magical potion or the ancient sage upon the mountaintop and you make it interesting and then you can create that ebb and flow and then you're a little less um 
trepidatious about, you know, giving them those uh, quote-unquote permanent status effects. They're only permanent if they don't engage with the world to fix it. Exactly that. That's a, a character I have in another game, in another friend's game. Uh, it's more colonial fantasy. Okay. Um, and this was a consequence of um, me uh, engaging with another uh, character. We had fought a really tough battle and uh, her character went down. So I attempted to steal uh, a potion from her. But she had her bag of holding next to a bag of devouring. Mm-hmm. And my character hastily didn't tell the difference. He's a dual-wheeled ranger, reaches in, loses his right hand, stayed that way for about eight sessions. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, through some role play and interplay and apology, he got the uh, party back on his side, sort of, at least mm-hmm. paid them. Uh, to uh, we had a mad scientist NPC who the GM provided, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to gather some mythical ingredients on three separate quests to restore a hand and pay like five thousand gold to do it. And now my character has three fingers on his right hand, but he has a a like a Wolverine spike that can pop out and he can stab with. Okay, which if as long as players are willing to, I find engage with that and everyone's interested in developments that aren't good per se but it just adds flavor i think it really enriches the experience oh i agree with that Um, i'm looking forward to using it a lot more as a a mechanic in a game and it's things like that that i really like that uh dungeon crawl classics specifically they don't have spells that allow you to remove curse at all Mm. <clears throat> excuse me and things like that because removing a curse should be a quest it should be interesting and I would like to do that for like a D&D 5th edition game but um, some of the curses like mummy rot are just way too powerful to um, not have remove curse in your game in some form or fashion that's I, I like placeholders like uh, lycanthropy. Yeah. No, lycanthropy is a good one because that doesn't kill you and keep you dead. Uh, let me see if I can find it in my uh, my monster manual to kind of just explain why I think you'd have to either do um, change mummy rot or uh, remove cor- curse becomes delay curse. Mm-hmm. And when you use remove curse, it just delays the curse for X amount of time based on your spell slot level. I, I think it's two sides of the same coin. It's uh, things like mummy rot being too powerful. Mm-hmm. And uh, in certain games, the players having access to things like remove curse or greater restoration yeah. just nullifies consequences. And that takes the drama out of your game. Yeah. And, and and to be fair, though, Mummy Rot definitely adds drama in combat specifically. Yeah. Like... Uh, changing it to a combat effect rather than a lasting... Yeah. You're going um, to die situation. Yeah. And uh, another channel, uh, WebDM does a great one called The Tyranny of Fun, and it talks about that. Where I it's, love that episode. Yeah, it's not... Yeah. It's not about the immediate fun. You can get fun happening later on or make something engaging. Like, you know, with B falling to the spiral in our werewolf game. Yeah, or, uh, uh, with B falling to the spiral, it's, it was you behind the scenes agreed on with your player. Yep. And walked it through in a narratively pleasing way. And now it just adds more to your game. Yeah, and the other one is um, actually uh, a good. Another example is Maxwell. Um, Maxwell, I tried very hard. I wasn't going to rob them of that victory if he did get killed in episode four. But I tried very hard to get him to leave and get out of that area because while it really annoyed uh, Sam in particular with a villain who got away. 
It has been mm-hmm. more narratively and narratively satisfying as the sessions have gone along because now they have this constant foil that, you know, increases in severity and he shows back up and they're like, oh, that villain's back and it's a familiar face that they don't like, but it adds a level of familiarity and fun to the game. Right. Uh, and I I don't know. Uh, it seems... Uh, Recurring villains escaping fights is not as prevalent in the hobby as it once was, if that makes sense. At least from the few actual plays I have listened to and the games I have participated in. Yeah, you have to uh, manicure it really, really well in order to keep it fair and make sure the villain gets away. Otherwise, if it's a cutscene getaway, your players will feel robbed. Yeah, and I, um, I think part of it's that, but also, you know, the if you don't find a body, the, they come back sort of thing. But then that makes players more likely to, um, you know, hell or high water, gotta see a body sort of thing, which adds its own level of, is this fun? It also adds double tap, too. Yeah, it, it adds double might tap. might pour everything on to make sure they're dead. and Yeah. Uh, while it could be satisfying for them, it might ruin the fun for you, too. Well, I mean, it's the fun for you, but I find players do enjoy recurring villains. They just don't oh. think they enjoy them until, you know, hindsight. And that's what I think that's to the heart of that concept of uh, the tyranny of fun. Uh, the, look, the looking back on the situation? Yeah, that, that it's not quote-unquote, as fun as it could be in that moment, but it builds and creates more fun. It creates more engagement. Um, Their other example was encumbrance. You know, one of the rules everyone throws out right um, first thing is, while encumbrance doesn't feel fun at the time because it's number crunching, and I will admit I'm the first person to try and get rid of as much number crunching in my games as possible, if you include that and ammo... And disease checks, especially like you roll randomly to see if they get a disease if they took any hit point damage. Mm-hmm. Because unless uh, someone does a medicine check on them and succeeds, uh, that adds to a certain level of realism that an immersion that lots of people end up finding fun, but they don't take all the pieces and think of the whole. They just know that one piece is very annoying hmm. that's uh one i run into a lot i pay very close attention to my arrow count mm-hmm. uh, and i i don't pound my co-players ab- about it everyone's gonna do their own thing and it, it won't take away my fun but mm-hmm. if they do there's there's a lot more drama in bard reaching for the black arrow rather than legolas having an infinite quiver Yes, and that's that's something I I I love when like um, getting disarmed or having a weapon break. Um, I have one DM I play with uh, who's really comfortable doing that with my character because mm-hmm. he, know I, he knows I roll I'll roll with it. Yeah, and it's it's just way cooler. Like you run across the battlefield and slide, pick up a sword that uh, an enemy dropped or something. It it just adds that sweet flavor. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and that's what I've been getting a little more comfortable with in uh, explanations in Werewolf now, too. Like, uh, if they take health damage, I'm now explaining some of those negatives because of parts of their body missing. And if they do the frenzy roll, some of those body parts might remain missing now. Like, they lose an eye because they're at a minus two penalty and are, you know, wounded. And if they get to regenerate normally, then the eye comes back and regenerates. Right. But if they get hit to critical and they have to do that rage roll, they get the battle scar missing eye. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a little more, I'm a little more comfortable with that now because I know people don't like the concept of permanent consequences. But I do think now, after all these years of running, that uh, permanent consequences add their own story. And after the initial. Um, the initial bitching, essentially, players tend to roll with it very well, well too, unless, you know, 
And if your player comes to you and goes, hey, I'm not comfortable with this, then you just change up what that permanent damage is. Yeah, and that that comes with... Uh, I have, one thing I think you do really well um, is laying a baseline, like session zeros mm-hmm. are so important. Discussing how you feel the game's going to go, uh, discussing like crossing points with your players, tell them like these are some things I like to do, are these okay with you? Yeah. And it, it's also... Uh, I I find it uh, semi difficult with uh, some experienced players and some newbies. I think there's a a neat little fifty fifty. Like I feel some experienced players and some newbies uh, really really like winning. Yes, I. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, that definitely. But uh, like I I have a crew of newbies that I run for. Um, that's one of my on hold games that uh-huh. uh. uh only two out of seven had ever played before, and very little. Mm-hmm. And they're they're cool with whatever I throw at them. Even after baseline talks, they're like, "Cool, yeah." And they're they're one of the most enthusiastic groups I've had, which is really refreshing. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, do you use but, any um, Do you use any safety uh, tools in your games? Safety tools, as... uh, like the uh, like when we were playing in person with uh, werewolf. No one could see this, obviously, because we had the. Uh, we have just the audio, and uh, also I don't. Uh, I edit things out, like side conversations and things like that. And then you, I also feel like triggering someone would be something I'd edit out, is uh, regardless if it felt jumpy or not, because it just seems like the right thing to do. Is mm. uh, I have these cards, and there's a green card, a yellow card, and a red card. And if it starts getting to a point where they're starting to feel uncomfortable, and like, hey, can you speed this along or do less detail, they point at the yellow one. And if they're cool and they want more, they'll point to the green one. And then if they, uh, or I'm sorry, not the X cards, these are uh, stoplight cards. I'm getting my things mixed up. And then the last one is a red card, and that red card, if that's thrown up, that is a hard stop. The role-playing stops and recording stops, and we basically decompress what happened, what was crossed, how can we make the player more comfortable? Because with certain games, you can cross into some really, really heavy topics and accidentally, you know, hit something that someone thought they were cool with and they were not. Mm. Uh, that's, I know of uh, safety tools like that. I haven't implemented them in any part of my game, but I do do checks at the table when certain momentous things are going to happen. Yeah. Or like character death, that sort of thing. Or there are just certain things that, uh, um, I won't touch, like, um, uh, un- unless it's thematically appropriate, which I usually steer clear of. No, uh, it just makes depending sense. on the group. Like, um, I mean, boundaries, but- boundaries exist not just for players. They exist for, for DMs. Oh, yeah. Like, if a player wants to explore a subject matter that the DM isn't uh, comfortable exploring, then that player might be better served finding a different DM. But... And the DM has every right to hit that card as well when a player tries to go there and they're like, no, we're ending mm. this now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not think, your job to serve power fantasies. Yeah, well, uh, not, just, not just power fantasies. Like, some of those things are things that they find narratively satisfying or that they want to narratively explore. And that, like, no judgment. But there, oh, is, yeah, the social, yeah. there is the social contract of... Look, man, these are your friends, or they're strangers if it's a convention game, but everyone needs a certain amount of respect at the table. And if you're going into something where the DM's like, hey, I'm not cool with this, then you need to respect that too. Just as a DM who typically has more power in these sort of situations anyway, needs to be cognizant of that regarding all of their players as well. Agreed. That's, uh, um, yeah, that's... uh... Definitely, it's definitely way more broad than power fantasies. That was a mistake on my part. Oh no, that's, that's that was fine. Uh, uh, the occasion we played in the second werewolf campaign, mm-hmm. where and this is hats off to your your uh, DM leader at a bunch of gamers here. Uh, we had a event in our past where uh, a, a friend of ours had died, and uh, Keegan here pulled me aside, and a week before he said, "Hey, we're gonna." Uh, I'm planning on going into this um, and gave me the heads up and I thought on it for a week and I ended up I think I remoted in for part of the game and then I bowed out 
partway through because I was uncomfortable. But it, it didn't stop the game for everybody else. And it actually turned out to be a really uh, fulfilling section of the game for several people. Yeah, so, I mean, just allowing people to bow out. And I, I believe I gave a telegraphed warning of, like, Brennan, this is the part. Yeah. So. It was, yeah. It, it was a weird thing, like, uh, using it as, using uh, RPGs and gaming as uh, therapy, I've, I find... Uh, really, really nice. I wouldn't call it but, therapy. Sim- I would call it for myself anyway. When I was doing it, was a form of catharsis. That's probably better worded. Yeah. Uh, I know, like uh, one of the players at the table there had a very extreme emotional reaction, and we stopped. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, uh, but even then, like it's if you don't want to touch it, you don't touch it. But there are some people who uh, you don't know until like, you're there. Oh yeah, yeah. But like, uh, I wasn't comfortable touching it. But if everyone else was, I was gonna let them do it. Yep. Like, and yeah, that's just something you gotta walk through in your games. Yeah. Like, I um, uh, in my recent game, the one that we reopened, mm-hmm. uh, the de facto party leader was uh, a chaotic evil warlock. Uh-huh. Um, who was basically guiding the party into as much chaos as uh, he could. Mm-hmm. And um, through random chance, he actually died. Um, and a few sessions before this, uh, one of the newer players had a character die. It was mm-hmm. the second session that character had been alive. Um, and I paused the game and said, Hey, are you cool with this? And he, he had, yeah, that's how the dice fell. Do it. Um, and we worked in a nice thing for that. But when uh, this evil warlock went down, uh, I paused the game. He immediately just nodded and said, continue. And we walked through it. But even like the worst, uh, legitimately the worst person in that setting mm-hmm. uh, had like a, a strange emotional reaction from the entire group, which was interesting just yeah. because it was a player character, which I thought was interesting. We yeah. all raised a glass to Brack at the end of that. <laughs> So I'm going to change gears here a bit, actually, because I'm kind of curious. I'm always curious about how other people uh, manage and prep for the games. What do you use to prep for your games? Uh, Notepad, uh, Word. How do you like to do it? Usually I handwrite my notes uh, just to get them out. Okay. Um, I spend an awful lot of time uh, just thinking about what the party might do. I... uh, don't do it often, but I'll make a flowchart of possibilities. As uh, uh, I'm not terribly fond of railroads, but I'm getting better at giving people options um, rather than letting them go crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'll usually have my map in front of me, uh, notes from what happened last game, and I'll write uh, just PCs they might run into or NPCs. Um, possible events uh maybe three or four possible adventure hooks okay and once they pick up those hooks i have a much more clear understanding where they're gonna go but i i actually wing it a lot more often than not (laughs) okay Uh, partially in reaction to how my players (laughs) play the game (laughs) but uh, i'm pretty comfortable winging it with that yeah on that note i uh i would Definitely encourage everybody just to draw on uh, experiences they've had, like um, uh, some setting stuff that I've, I've taken from video games that I played long ago or from friends' D&D games, like yours or uh, Riley's. Like, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of uh, the guilds out of a friend's game I liked so much, I just ripped the whole thing out and put it in my own game. Okay. Like a permanent fixture. No, uh, no shame in that. Uh, for myself, I tend to do. Uh, I have a word document usually, and I write down. Uh, I write down all the major players in the the adventure, and then I uh, I highlight their names in bold because I don't want to spend too much time scanning my document. And I write down what they're going to find in certain areas, how I think they're going to go about what they're doing. Um, I've gotten better about 
less of that and more about writing out what's going to happen if they don't get involved. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the new tactic I've been trying to do. Um, and then from there, I have a bold little section that I put in session notes, uh, which is like where I write down all the off the rail horseshit they've pulled throughout the session. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it goes completely against uh, what I had planned. Uh, your guys's werewolf document. Um, the last time, last big campaign we did, the uh, the two or three year old one. Yeah, that lasted that long. Um, that one. Uh, some of those sections are like two or three paragraphs of notes. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that uh, more from the earlier side of things or from uh, the later bits? Both. Some, there's literally nothing there, and then some where it's just huge. Like, there was one when I had a, I had planned for your right challenge, and you didn't show up because something personal came along, and so, like, that entire section, like, the entire section basically got crossed off, and it was, I was winging it the entire time. I truly apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, this document's huge. I don't know if uh, I ever told you how big your campaign got, especially because um, with your campaign, I didn't start the notes at the very beginning like I did with the current one. Right. Because I used to be very bad at keeping notes. Um, what I used to do was just write out antagonist uh, stats or um, ally stats and then just tried to keep everything up in my head, and I ended up forgetting storylines and things like that. For months at a time, went oh shit. Uh, so, <laughs> right. um, but this document's uh 158 pages long, and it's uh 79,030 words. Just on bullet point notes. Uh, no, with like me writing out like they're gonna probably do this, 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 and this sure. is while I was still, uh, and this is while I was still um refining it. So each session, at the beginning, each session was about half a page. And then for, like, the more uh, more elaborate ones where I had, like, way more stuff happening. Because um, I date them, too. I have a, I have a date, and then I have the storyline mm. written underneath it. Now, a lot of the storylines end up becoming my episode names now. Uh, some of them are incredibly embarrassing and they never saw the light of day my, my personal favorite one was from a vampire game called blood sex and rock and roll that's great <laughs> what are you talking about but yeah like i got february 21st 2015 travel to boston and robert's foster challenge and then i also have jimmy's foster challenge then I've got miscellaneous challenges. And then I used to write down consequences. I don't do that as much anymore. Now that I've... Because this was before I started writing down just what would happen if you didn't get involved. Right. Um, and then I've got like in-session notes of uh, people's names. That that happened a lot uh, due to certain individuals. Uh, Who shall not be mentioned. No, they, they, they mention themselves. Uh, <laughs> on yeah. that front, players... Uh, Take copious notes so you can heckle your DM for the name of every person you ever meet. But uh, yeah, then some of these some of these later adventures they they turn into about um, almost a page per session of uh, initial prepping notes. Mm. Uh, and other ones like in my current game that that document some of those because it's just informational based on sites. They these notes can be about two to two and a half pages of just raw information. Now, a lot of it's copy-pasted. Mm-hmm. Um, a fair amount is actually copy-pasted between, uh, between adventures so that I don't have to scroll up and down in the middle of play. But, like, my current document is 145 pages with uh, 59,080 words. And that's... 35-ish episodes in? That's 35-ish episodes. That's 37 episodes in, and including the sessions that were not recorded, because we recorded partway through, because there was one episode, or one session, where I was like, 
I could record this and it wouldn't be terrible. <laughs> and so, let's see, there's, there's several um, months worth of adventures before we actually got to, uh, got to recording. <laughs> so our first session was the 20th of May, 2018. So this game's been going on for two years. Already, okay. Yeah, right. I, I, I thought you had started it when you started recording. Uh, nope, nope. Uh, okay. Shoot. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and that's when, yeah, because you joined before we recorded. Remember, you played uh, Louis Earthwalker during their uh, Right to Find Bear. Oh, I, I suppose that's true. Yeah, but th- that was only last year, I think. No, it was not. That was yeah. almost two years ago. Oh, jeez. That happened July twenty second, twenty eighteen. This is why you know. This is why you date your notes so you can like wax over them nostalgically. I need to start doing that. Um, I, I would like to compare sometime uh, my player note that filled up an entire notebook um, <laughs> from our uh, second werewolf campaign. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, let's see. Uh, we can fill in perhaps fill in the blanks uh, where you forgot things, and I can actually get some context for what I wrote. Yeah, so Stranger in a Strange Sept, which is the very first episode of our series, was recorded and played on March 10th, 2019. Jeez. Yeah. That's weird to think about, just the the length of time. Yeah, no, you don't think about it until, like, after the fact. Um, I always say I'm going to run a short game, and then they're always, like, five-year epics. That's why I'm not allowed to run Exalted yet. Mm. Proves me wrong. Um, Especially because I've been listening to a lot of uh, lectures and reading a lot of books on mythology, which has been really spiking my Exalted interest, but also adding to Werewolf Backstory. Mm. Um, Because a lot of those lectures talk about how mythology can have a religious truth and all that, but it also speaks to greater cultural truths. So Fine. create yeah. create culture heroes in your games and you can tell those stories in your in character and that will uh telegraph how people the ideal of how people are supposed to act in your world societies as well as how they're not supposed to act. Hmm. That's something I need to do a bit more of uh for my Vikings game. I uh was listening to a a few podcasts on Norse mythology, but mm. it is a lot to unpack and then to apply to your game. You gotta spend a lot of time writing on it. You do, but you can do quick bullet points. Uh, there's a game called uh, Forgotten Lands, mm-hmm. and they actually have a randomized table for legends. Oh, nice. To give you a framework of legends, and then you just real quickly uh, fill out the um, fill out the details. Forgotten Lands. I'm writing that down. Uh, yeah, I shared it on my Facebook. I think it was before I built made the Bunch of Gamers page. It might have been after. It was uh, It was free, actually, for a little while on DriveThruRPG. Just the, uh, just the, uh, shit. Uh, well, or just the PDFs. There we go. Anyway, I got there. So, like, um, roll a D66. A sixty-six sided die. I I guess so. I think they're trying to say sixty-six, but yeah. How do you meet? Roll d sixty-six, and then eleven to twelve, it's one thing. Thirteen to fourteen, it's another, and then it goes all the way up to uh, sixty-five and sixty-six. I think it's like how to meet uh, players. Oh, okay. And then they they have you roll to see how old the legend is, and then you roll again to see. There was, and it gives you an adjective and a, uh, and then a uh, species. So you could say, like, there's a bloodthirsty king. And then you roll a d66, and it says, Who sought a weapon because of honor and traveled to a tree located close by to the location they're hearing the story, obviously. And then the next table is... In a, or in some, ruins, dark forest, mountains, or one of any of those, 
in the direction of, and then you get a direction. The legend goes that he slash she, let's say, died in battle, and the location there is a dwarven artifact, but also a cruel goblin, or cruel goblins. And then you can fill out the rest. Done. And so it gives you plenty of tables to just generate legends on the fly for mm. adventure hooks. That's uh, something I'll, I'll definitely have to apply in the future. Um, do you often use that, or do you use... I haven't uh, used it a lot. I, I tend to think of, think of my own, or I um, for werewolf specifically, I pull from uh, some of the... Some of the tribes books and things like that, and then remove some of the nineties. That makes mm. sense. Cause yeah, yeah, that that that's actually um, slightly similar, which I I found a lot more appealing. And I've I'd forgotten whether I done it in a game with you or not. But on a game I'm working on right now of Starfinder, mm-hmm. uh, I had three players, and we just did a one shot to kind of test the waters. Um, and I quickly needed the name of a ship, and I just pointed to the players and said, okay, uh, give me a color, give me uh, an adjective, and give me a, a verb. Mm-hmm. And we came up with the name of the ship, and it was just a fun little, like, uh, um, not puzzle or team building, but it was just a little creative moment that everybody shared in. Yeah. It, it, it was just a nice moment that it didn't really slow the game down, and it just added a natural feeling to it yeah uh, or like i've had these thoughts for like exalted now especially with the lunar book coming out is you have your players they've just freshly exalted they don't uh i would give them none of the creation backstory before they made their characters i'd just give them information on that one village they came from mm-hmm. and have like a folk hero who long ago challenged the god of the sky the uh the god of the clouds and the skies on the mountain on the distance for he withheld rain from the village until they would send him a maiden the hero in question dressed himself as a woman and revealed his true nature and beat the god into submission and then they hear that story they think that it's you know true and long ago and then later on they meet that character who was, who was actually a lunar exalted, which is why they're able to beat the god down, and then they find out what parts of the story were exaggerated and which ones were true, how much he lives, he does or does not live up to that legend. Mm-hmm. I think that would be... I just find that as a really interesting, interesting place to take a story for a game like that, and... Uh, conversely, with like bringing it back to Werewolf, since that's what most people here know the channel by, is you have because every rank five werewolf, and it's something I've I've kind of struggled with in past games and a little bit in this one, is if Agaru is rank four or five, they are well known. Like if they are a rank five werewolf, it's almost guaranteed they're known around the world. And so they have kind of a legend about them and things they've done. And many of these, some of these legends are true. Some of these legends are exaggerations. Um, since werewolves tend not to like to write things down. And then you have this larger than life character and you start feeding in some of these legends, legendary werewolves and things like that, especially during moot sessions, which once again is something I'm not the best at in this game even. Uh, and what I'm trying to, trying to improve upon and then they actually meet these werewolves and in some cases they are just as amazing as the uh the stories and in others they're deeply flawed in ways that the stories gloss over mm, and then you and you play with those expectations yeah that's that's something i really like and uh like uh meeting albrecht in a game is deeply satisfying because he's usually a cool guy He's, yeah, he's the NPC everybody wants to befriend, mm-hmm. um, and he's the one person where it's like there are no heroes in the world of darkness. Go fuck yourself, Outbreak is my hero. <laughs> <laughs> Every time, uh, yeah, and then then you balance it with like your um, Metis meeting a Fiana or something, uh, like or uh, 
maybe a high ranking. Uh, right, actually, not even a high ranking. Maybe a glasswalker coming across a like a high ranking red talon, and they just get no love. Yeah, or actually, I I, I just thought of this. What if uh, you have a person playing a Metis character? Low rank, obviously, and they hear about this great Metis hero who rose above his station, you know, proved Metis were great and things like that, became an elder, actually holds like a warder position in a sept, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then when they meet him, they find out he doesn't give a shit about the plight of other Metis. And in fact, part of the reason he got there is because he he has been so callous to Metis in the past. And so now you have this dichotomy where you have a an NPC who's supposed to be this sort of shining example of what a Metis can be if they lift themselves up and help each other, only to find out this guy doesn't help anyone and actually on occasion uses them as stepping stones. Turns out that they're really morally bankrupt in that sense. Bankrupt, yes. I would say that that's what they've chosen to do to survive because they're the one who's constantly getting that pushback. Too. They they suffer the same sort of prejudices as the character does, and that oh, yeah. callousness then becomes kind of stark, and then it makes them question if they have to be like them to get anywhere. And yeah. for some players, you play the drama of them maybe going down that hole, or others, you play the drama up of them rising above to try and prove this person r- wrong out of spite. Yeah, it- that that offers a di- really nice dichotomy of choice. Like, uh, on the one hand, they're cruel and callous and uh, use them as stepping stones, but on the other, uh, it's kind of a they're surviving in that position. And uh, I I think Werewolf is my favorite game, and and I I think I've played like ninety percent of my Werewolf games with you, so mm-hmm. I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> but uh, having that moral ambiguity line mm-hmm. is deeply satisfying no i absolutely agree and i think part of it is uh also something i've also been poor about um even with this game i'm trying to get better is the moral ambiguity even of pentex pentex is 100 percent for the worm like they are but the people in pentex a lot of them are trying to do good mm. um and on top of that um even though atoli burgers pays their employees dog shit, you know, treats them like trash, like any sort of fast food restaurant does. They pay better than any other fast food restaurant on the market. Thus, people strive to work there because they are treated better than other companies, despite the fact that Atoli's is soul-crushing and their food is tainted with the worm. Right. You have people in Magadon who are actually genuinely trying to produce cures for cancer. But on top of that, then they're producing all these byproducts that strengthen the worm. Or, yeah, they've created the cancer treatment, but now Magadon's selling it to the highest bidder, so it's not going to get to the people that person intended to help. Or, I have one that is a slight spoiler for the next game. Luckily, this... This recording will come out after we play, hopefully. Otherwise, i got to cut this shit out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is um, with the current one, they, they found out about all these um, inert veins in Pentex uh, pain pills. How I'm playing it up is a third of them are going out as pills for a, a subsidiary of Magadon. Where Magadon actually pretends to be its own uh, cheaper competitor, where they use their lower quality ingredients for these, and these pills are going to go to developing countries for cheap. There's a bane, a uh, inert bane in every like hundred thousandth to a millionth pill, and by itself it can't do anything, but. They're also providing medication for uh, ranchers in Colorado. And that medication has something called Umbrellathol 6. And when anything ingests enough of it, it becomes saturated. 
And if someone eats Umbrella Thal 6 and there is a dormant spirit in them, the spirit wakes up and it can turn them into Fomori. And so this beef is going to be sold to Atullis. Atullis is creating now fast, cheap, and available food in those countries. And so if those people take those cheap medications and that eat at that plant that is allowing them to eat now and eat comfortably, they could become a Fomori. Now the players could get around that by killing or completely destroying the inert veins of the pills. However, I'm going to play it as if they do that, the whole the the bane's toxicity leaks out and it spoils the whole batch. None of the pills will work. So a bunch of people will be buying pills that do not work. And the other part is is the more the the actual magadon drugs, the high quality drugs that have inert veins are going to be uh, are getting donated to charity organizations that are going to war-torn countries to help refugees. And they are also providing supplements and MREs that also have Umbrellathol in it. Mm. And so if they destroy those drugs, once again, drugs going to, uh, to a war-torn country that don't work. So people, and they, that cannot be detected in the physical world. So if those people take those drugs and it doesn't work, they will die and they will die painfully more than likely in mass for what could stop maybe at most a hundred Fomori. Wherever it breeds, wherever it dwells. And uh, that, that's part of it. But, you know, yeah. that, that well, is a moral I'm, dilemma, especially for Hamidborn, I would think. Oh, certainly. And uh, it also has uh, the um, uh, caveat of... Uh, if it's going to um, developing countries, uh, those are um, typically places where there's not a huge uh, Garu presence or where the Garu are actively opposed to the changer presence there. Mm-hmm. So while they're busy, depending on what angle the players take, um, if like, it's uh, the name of the um, lion leader in Africa. Oh, Blacktooth? Blacktooth. Um, Blacktooth's going to be probably less likely to get help from the Garden fighting. Um, and then they can't focus on this issue of more Fomori coming in. And that's just going to exacerbate the problem. Yep. So it, it's like a three-sided uh, hammer that drops, or shoe that drops. Mm-hmm. And remember, the worm gets stronger from suffering itself, too. Mm-hmm. And so those people suffering, trying to get drugs, and the confusion, and the pain, and the anger directed at the world itself as the drugs aren't working and people around them are dying would produce banes, or potentially strengthen banes as well. So what's the, what's the morally right action to take? Yeah, and taking no action will be the hardest part. Exactly, because you know that it could create Fomori. And that's that's the angle I'm trying to go with with our current storyline. Hmm. Uh, we'll find out, though. This this episode will go out Monday, I think, since we didn't put out a Pug, Pugmire episode since we are doing our... They came from Session Zero. Hmm. But, yeah, that's... Those are some of the ideas I like to play with, and I like, I like playing with the moral ambiguity and... Things like that. And it, there's other ways to do it, too. So the other thing is that uh, Magadon is working on a cure for diabetes. but they And they're using a kinfolk to discover it. And they're also using this opportunity to try and map the Garu genome to get a better handle of how, with their medical records of who might be kin. And who might be Garu, who come into their their hospitals. Yeah, because uh, Garu might not have it or... Or they, they, they'll have it, but then you get to go, okay, this whole community is likely got at least a few werewolves in it. And then you can plan accordingly your plans as you share information with other subsidiaries. Mm. But on top of that, though, there are kinfolk who suffer from diabetes. Ah, that's true. So do you hide the Garu, or do you save those kinfolk? The grief and suffering? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
And you don't have yeah. to answer them here. You're not in the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were questions to me. Those weren't hypothetical. <laughs> oh, okay. Make your choice. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather make those choices in character, personally. <laughs> so, so that I, I at least have some, uh, uh, what is it? Um, emotional distance? Not not emotional distance. I have a excuse like, that's not me. That's Malcolm. <laughs> that's Louis Earthwalker. Oof, man, that is that is the number one excuse in our goddamn community of RPGs that allowed all those right wing, uh, alt right trolls. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely don't agree with using. Those oh, I know. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I uh, one of my characters. I'm uh, working uh, campaigns almost done. It's uh, that colonial game. I made him. As a, because uh, it's colonial, there's still slavery, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I made him as a slave catcher, uh-huh. but uh, with the intention of going through a redemption arc uh-huh. uh, to fit the plot of the overarching story. Yeah, because I knew I knew the overarching story before we played it. I think I was, I believe I was one of the only people. Yeah, and I, I think I posted it a while ago. The um... The concept of um, if you want to play a character who is racist, uh, even into fantasy races, and there is no narrative consequence for that, or your character doesn't learn the error of their ways and then must make amends, then you just want to do that in real life, but you understand there are consequences. Yeah, and you're using escapism to play out your actual feelings yeah so bad and wrong yeah which is why i think white wolf um removed the uh the swords of heimdall from the get of fenris after the first edition tribe book i don't know of those ones those are the ones who are basically neo-nazi gets oh they believe in like racial superiority things like that and uh in revised edition when it gets to their section they go we hunted them down Fuck Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah. Perfect. No, that, that, uh, perhaps having, uh, emotional distance might have been the better word. Just think, to say, yeah. like, to this grappling with those choices in game or some of those things that, like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. The actual, actually make the players, like, ah, we're playing a fun game together. When in reality, you're like, oh, what choice would I make in this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, is it like am i learning more about myself <laughs> yeah and like, doing a, a deep dive on psyche yeah or at least you know playing the thought thought experiment because i i agree with matt colville that it, there's, there's nothing inherently virtuous with our hobby you can oh, do no. virtuous things with it i think but yeah uh and i i don't know if tough i don't know even know if i would say tough moral questions are necessarily a virtuous part of the hobby Oh no! That, I think that's uh, that specifically applies to your games because you tend to write them in, like uh, yeah. I, but it's more of I think it's more um, selfishly self interested in my part because I think that makes good narrative. I don't necessarily think I never think ahead to how um, I, I I take my players' feelings into consideration. Obviously, because I don't want them to be uncomfortable, like at my table. But you know, I you know what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I I just think it's uh, I I'm not against the narrative, and it does build a good narrative. That's why uh, like six of us can get together and be invested once a week for three years. Yes. Um, <laughs> and have like a, a deep emotional reaction after three years when the book finally closes, which yes. I think we should discuss at some point because uh, that was. The, the single best game closing I've ever been a part of. Well, uh, I, I'm not going to toot my own one, so it's all... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying, like, uh, uh, narrative, I think, is the goal, and fun is the goal. Uh, but like, if you happen to have a, uh, a moral exploration of self partway through, uh, that's not a bad thing. That's just... Uh, that's, that's the little shower shampoo. Or the chocolates when you get into your hotel room. <laughs> oh, that that that's fair. That's totally fair. I so you know, I gotta... yeah. 
uh, that's just a bonus. Like, uh, I, as something I'm playing with, like, I, I want to be better at writing those things. Um, and, uh, I don't structure my game enough to give myself options in that way, typically. Um, I still, I think I'm more, more on the swords and sorcery side as far as my games right now. And I'm attempting to change it up to have more complex narratives. Okay. Uh, I mean, no, that, that's why I, I made the uh, uh, observation that your game is usually very narrative. Uh, that's true, and but it, I think I, I I will say there is there's something to be said for the fun factor. Certainly, fun is the most important part of any role playing game. It's in the title. Uh, and two, yeah. I sometimes I, I do like your um, your ability to do sword and sorcery. Actually, I really like I like sword and sorcery. And it is there is something to be said about uh, having fun with quick narrative or uh, quick quick episodic narratives. Yeah. Uh, if uh, that's one of the groups I'm running for right now, um, uh, we're getting better about meeting up more regularly. But for a while there, we'd have a game about once every three to five months, which more episodic lent itself better to that. Yeah. So it's it's just uh, structuring the game around the group you're with, or what everybody's capability is at whatever time. Certainly. Uh, one sec. Some technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> is that the title of the next episode? I mean, it could be. <laughs> Depends on how badly they fuck up. <laughs> I am currently behind. I must catch up. Oh yeah. Um where uh where are you at? Uh very far behind. Oh. <laughs> I think episode sixteen or twenty one. Oh Jesus, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All good. I remember you jumped ahead to Broken Family because you saw that title title and you're like, I must know. Oh yes, that was great. <laughs> uh, and and all the little uh like short sessions everybody had, the like Point one, point two, point three. Mm-hmm. That was a really nice touch. I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, I've I've started to try and implement uh, little sort of side adventures when I could, when people were far were out of uh, you know, not necessarily together. Mm-hmm. That way, you don't have the boring thing where everyone's sitting around listening to uh, someone else. And while they should be concerned about the other person's narrative, I also understand that you know you came to play as well. And so if I did all those sessions back to back to back in one big session where it was like groupings of a of a fourth where they had to, you know, either leave the room so they didn't talk loud enough for the recording to pick them up or just sat there and listened, that's kind of, excuse me, kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten better about that too, about possibly doing, and I've thought about this and I've played with it before, is um, giving the other players NPCs to play. When it's someone else's specific story. Mm. I've thought of that. Um, I've also thought about... I've played with this idea before, and I don't, I don't have the time, nor do I have really the uh, the fortitude or the mental bandwidth to do it, but do, run two campaigns of werewolf happening in different parts of the world and then having them meet for in one big session splitting off again and then having the narratives occasionally intersect and then having the uh you know the guest pack that are in the newest episodes them being able to go to different areas and then them showing up in the other person's game that'd be an interesting way to play with downtime it would be uh i think just grander stories Hmm. um like how uh, larp stewart where you have a couple smaller storytellers and like if I if I built up this Discord channel, let's say, and I I chose two or three DMs I really trusted, and then I had my groups, and we all ran our games, and then they all gave me the recordings. I listened to them while I edited them, put them up, and so I'd remember what happened, and we keep the games in the same sort of uh, day's cadence, I guess, where the sessions, all the sessions happen over the same number of days, or roughly so enough so to where they can meet again and then they start hearing about the legends of the other characters 
Yeah. Like, and then you have a grand session with like 20 to 30 people at a grand moot. That would, I was just about to say that, uh, mm-hmm. like a moot that's actually a moot would probably, uh, fix the problem of making it feel that way. Like do a barbecue with yeah. a fire pit in the middle and everybody is there in character. I mean, that's, that's what LARPs do essentially. I also hear though that, uh, doing a LARP moot is like the worst part of it because, you know, it's so chaotic and you have everyone there trying to tell their stories and things like that. But it, it, it's a thought I've had before. I, it's one that's not realistic. And at the end of the day, I don't think I'd actually want to do. Mm. It's kind of like the... Uh, for your guys' campaign, I actually was going to have another group doing vampire, but that, that group fell apart. And then... Um, Kind of uh, opposing storylines? Opposing, yeah, to some degree. So I was actually going to... So the original plan with the, uh, the the second game that we did with uh, Roger and Snow and all of them was... The original plan was for a couple months you do Werewolf, and then for a couple months you do Vampire the Masquerade, and then for like a week or two you'd play a Pentex first team who would get into trouble and then you'd go back to your werewolf characters trying to clean it up. Mm. And then you'd have, and then I have another short one with a couple kinfolk. And then when we finally got to the apocalypse, I would tell people to pick up certain characters and they'd actually crisscross. So some people would be playing their vampire characters with others who were playing their werewolves trying to survive a worm invasion and then, like, the Pentex team would defect because they want to survive. And they're working alongside werewolves and vampires and kinfolk and so on and so forth till you got to the end. And then you, you were all your werewolf characters again for the final fight. That was the original vision of that hmm. campaign. That's a pretty intricate one. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I'm happy I didn't do it that way. Hmm. On uh, uh, the subject of those type of games, have you ever... Uh, um, toyed with the idea or designed a West Marches game. I've thought about it. I've I've never done it. Um, I've toyed with it. I do have Hexographer, and I've I have considered it multiple times. Hmm. That's a. I wanted to run that style of game during this uh, quarantine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but none of my regular players really showed interest. Yeah. Um. Which it it is what it is, but I I am uh, about to join one okay, uh, coming cool. up soon. So very nice. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right. I think we've ta- we've yammered enough about uh, our games. I think we'll do this in a couple weeks, probably, or we can do this again next week. Actually, I have an off week next week for okay. games, so we can do a recording. Uh, I'll see if we can pull others others in. I oh, we'll might do it on a Friday or a Saturday, depending. And, Sounds good to me. All right, cool. I will see you all guys in a week or two. I'm signing out.